0: This episode of The Renaissance is brought to you by DennisBird.com. As many of you may know, I'm a painter as well as a podcaster and art educator, and for the past several years, I have followed the path of the naturalist and explorer, William Bartram, creating landscape paintings along the way. When you visit DennisBird.com, you will be able to see my latest work. We do ship throughout the United States and Canada, so please email me for shipping and purchase information. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance, Episode 13, Perugino. and welcome to the Renaissance. This is your host, Dennis Bird. I hope everyone had a wonderful and restful Thanksgiving. In the last episode, I mentioned that the show will be available on Google Play. So Google Play has not yet launched their podcast section, but this is something to look forward to in the next several months. As with iTunes and Stitcher, reviews are very important for the visibility of the show. So please consider writing a review and help us to promote the podcast. I would also like to remind you about the tour in 2017. I know, it seems like it's a long way off, but signing up early does allow you to spread out your payments. Just visit the website www.therenaissancepodcast.com and click on the tour tab for more information. The tour ID is dbyrd2017. With that, let's explore the life and work of Pietro Perugino. So, there seems to be some dispute about Pietro Perugino's early life. Vasari actually paints him as being extremely poor, who only through hard work managed to make his way to the top of the Renaissance art world. However, in Vittoria Garibaldi's biography on Perugino, she claims he was in fact born to one of the wealthiest men in Perugia. Born Pietro Venucci sometime in 1450 in Citta della Pieve, near Perugia, which is the capital of Umbria, he is later given the nickname Perugino because he is from the region near Perugia. His initial training seems to have taken place in Umbria, and he appears to have been heavily influenced by Piero della Francesca. This is the master of perspective we discussed back in episode 8. According to Vasari, he traveled to Florence where he was then accepted into the workshop of Verrocchio. Several of his early paintings have a Verrocchio-esque style, so the artist was either heavily influenced by him or in his workshop. Perugino would be catapulted to fame during his work in the Sistine Chapel, when he was apparently brought in to assist Ghirlandaio to paint the walls of the chapel. In addition to the delivery of the keys, Perugino also painted the altarpiece, which was the Assumption of the Virgin, However, this altarpiece would later be destroyed to make room for Michelangelo's Last Judgment. As Perugino's reputation increased, he became much in demand in Florence. Perugino was commissioned to paint a nativity scene in one of the local convents. In this convent, he painted several of the faces and heads from life, possibly including Verrocchio among the crowd. Vasari relates a story to the stinginess and distrustfulness of the prior of this convent, who always insisted on being present when Perugino used ultramarine blue. Now, ultramarine blue was an extremely rare and expensive pigment. It was often imported by the Venetians. The best varieties come from Asia, particularly the region in Afghanistan. The prior insisted on the use of ultramarine blue in the paintings, but he insisted that he be present when they were mixed. Perugino disliked the intrusion of the prior, and he contrived a scheme to make him look like a fool. Every time he dipped the brush into the paint, he would dip it so that the brush pulled more of the water and less of the pigment. The artist would constantly call for more pigment from the prior's bag, causing the prior to remark on how much blue the plaster seemed to absorb. Finally, Perugino handed the basin back to the prior with the pigment in the bottom and admonished him to trust an honest man. He could cheat him if he desired, whether the prior stood watch or not. One of Perugino's earliest commissions was that of the Adoration of the Magi, which, considering we're entering the Christmas season, seems quite appropriate. This was painted for the Church of Santa Maria de Servi in Perugia. Possibly in 1472 or 1476, there seems to be quite a bit of dispute about this. Now, Perugino uses both linear perspective and aerial perspective in this piece. We see linear perspective in the stable's roof, but in the background, we see a beautiful use of of aerial perspective with the distant blue hills. In the foreground, we see a procession of magi bringing gifts to Jesus and Mary, and the baby Jesus stands and blesses the magi as they present their gifts. Probably what made Perugino... The most well-known was his work in the Sistine Chapel that we've already discussed. In particular, his most famous piece, which is that of the delivery of the keys. Even if you're not familiar with Perugino, you're going to know this piece. This is one of the best and most used examples of linear perspective. So, as with Verrocchio and Girlandio, when you're in the Sistine Chapel, again, look around. You'll see many of these famous works. Perugino was given the commission while he was still working within the old St. Peter's. And looking ahead, St. Peter's, or the old St. Peter's, was torn down to make way for the new one, which uh, was completed, at least the dome was completed by Michelangelo. Now, some accounts have Perugino coming in to assist Ghirlandaio in covering the walls of the chapel, making Ghirlandaio the primary artist working within the chapel. However, there are other accounts that have Ghirlandaio coming in to assist Perugino. I tend to lean towards the idea that Perugino was brought in as Ghirlandaio's assistant, since since Ghirlandaio was already a well-known painter and Perugino was a relatively unknown. It is possible that Perugino was considered not up to the task to complete the entire chapel by himself, and they therefore decided to bring in the biggest name of Fresco in the day. Either way, we have three major masters working within the walls of the Sistine Chapel. I forgot to mention Botticelli was also engaged in the work in the Sistine Chapel, so perhaps that makes four major masters. Perugino's painting references Matthew 16, verses 16 through 20, which I'll read to you now. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Of course, Peter was known as Simon before Jesus gave him this name, Peter, which comes from Rock Petros. And the keys that Peter is given represent the power of forgiveness, as well as the authority to share the gospel. The Catholic Church believes that this is the moment Christ gives Peter authority and therefore makes him the first pope. So you can see why this would be an important scene to include within the pope's chapel, the Sistine Chapel, at the Vatican. Behind the main scene of Christ, Peter, and the Apostles, we see Florence Cathedral, flanked by two triumphal arches, though it's actually supposed to represent the Temple of Solomon. We can very clearly see Brunelleschi's dome, however. Between Christ and the Temple, we see various scenes depicting Christ's life, particularly the tribute money and the Stony of Christ. Many of these figures seem to be inspired by Verrocchio, And remember, Vasari states that Verrocchio was Perugino's master. Now, I've already mentioned that this is one of the most widely used examples for linear perspective. Part of the reason is because Perugino creates this grid pattern, which heightens this illusion. This is actually the typical way you'd learn perspective in a high school art class. And the lines all converge at a central vanishing point, and the horizontal lines become closer and closer together as you near the horizon. In fact, there's even a way to measure this out so that they're evenly spaced within the illusion of perspective. But we also see aerial perspective in both the ground plane and the distant hills behind the cathedral slash Temple of Solomon. It's this combined use of linear perspective and aerial perspective that he so masterfully executes that would inspire future artists, particularly Raphael, who is one of Perugino's students. In 1490... Perugino is commissioned to complete the Pietà. Now, there are some discrepancies about the dates. So, probably safe to say between 1483 and 1493. This piece is painted in oil on a wood panel. And here we see Perugino experimenting with oil, as we have seen with some other previous artists. Of course, the method was developed in Flanders and then introduced into Italy. In the image, we see the rigid body of Jesus, supported by Mary and john the evangelist and again we see strong linear perspective along the series of arches over the figure of mary and jesus but if you look just to mary to the left of mary's elbow you can see this use of aerial perspective one of my favorite works to look at is the painting of apollo and marsias from 1495 now the reason why this is one of my favorites is because it doesn't look like his other paintings in fact Many people thought it was painted by Raphael for years. Possibly this was painted for Lorenzo de' Medici, though he did die in 1492. Even the subject of the painting is somewhat in dispute. Most people tend to believe, most art historians, that this is Apollo and Marsaias. In the Greek myth, Marsaias challenges Apollo to a contest of the flute. He lost the contest and was flayed as punishment for daring to challenge a god. This is an example of what happens to those who think they are above their, their mortal natures. We do see a slightly different style in this work, and which is why many art historians attributed it to Raphael. When I look at it, I see elements of Titian or Giorgione, maybe even a little bit of Leonardo. These are all artists we're going to discuss later, uh, but if you choose to look these up, you can see there's a softness and a style to the drawing and painting and the handling of the paint that's very similar. This particular work, though, shows he's responding to new ideas and new techniques, including the influences of Flemish art, particularly in the medium that he's using. And we see a softer effect. Now, we still see his mastery of aerial perspective, but there's a softness to the figures, an atmosphere in the painting that is reminiscent of Leonardo. The last work I want to discuss... Is the work that really ends Perugino's career. And though he painted for many years after, he never really recovered his reputation. This is the Assumption of the Virgin, painted between 1404 and 1407. Now, if you look at the painting on the website and and look at it on its own, it's a beautiful work of high Renaissance art. It was painted as part of the Annunciato Polyptych, or the Annunciation. Now, it's a series of multiple paintings. The work was originally commissioned to Filippino Lippi, the son of Filippo Lippi. He then lost the commission to Leonardo da Vinci, who completed the sketch of St. Anne for this work, but he left for Milan before finishing it. The commission was then given back to Filippino Lippi, but he died before completing it in 1504. In walks Perugino, who would then complete the work. Now, there were multiple paintings, some of which Lippi did complete. Perugino's task was to complete the rest of the paintings that Lippi left unfinished when he died. We're going to focus solely on the Assumption of the Virgin Panel. This is Perugino's last work in Florence. Now, I mentioned it was the work that essentially ended his career. And looking at it, it's a beautiful work. However, in Florence, the critics complained that Perugino was lacking originality, he had become a hack. He was reusing the same designs over and over again. So while it's a great work, Florentines have already seen this a hundred times. The exact same figures of the Virgin in multiple paintings around the city. I'll probably post some of these on the website so you can see and compare the similarity between the Virgin and several of his uh, very well-known female saints. Similar pose, similar, similar handling of the drapery. They're almost the, well, not almost, they are the exact same figure. Using sketches and reusing sketches and compositions was not an unusual practice for artists. Uh, Michelangelo did uh, the same thing with the Sistine ceiling. Leonardo was known for doing this. Several artists did this. However, Perugino took this to such an extent that Florentines mocked him for it. In fact, even Michelangelo is reported to have publicly criticized Perugino, to his face no less, and essentially called him a hack. So, this work ended his career in Florence. Now, he would go on to paint for several years. In fact, Pope Julius, who will be a major figure when we get to Michelangelo, would summon Perugino to Rome for a project in Vatican City. But before long, Julius would come to prefer the work of Perugino's student, Raphael. After this, Perugino would leave Rome for Perugia in 1512. He had taken on several commissions, including a fresco for the Church of Castello di Fortignano, but he would die of the plague before completing the work. Like many plague victims, he was buried without much ceremony in an open grave with the other victims. And his exact resting spot today is unknown. Despite Perugino's fall from grace, it must be noted that his workshop produced Raphael. And as we know, Raphael will be a major figure in the High Renaissance. So Pedrgino's contribution, not only in his work, but also his students, cannot be underestimated. I have a couple of announcements as we end the show. In two weeks, I will be posting a special episode on Christmas traditions of the Renaissance. This is something I'm looking forward to. I think it'll be a lot of fun, and it'll give us a little bit of a, a detour from the Renaissance art. When we come back in January, we will pick up with... um the High Renaissance, and we will begin discussing Lorenzo de' Medici, Savonarola, as well as Leonardo, Michelangelo, and Raphael. So I'm really looking forward to it. I hope you guys are too. So we will see everyone back in two weeks, and thank you for listening to the Renaissance Podcast. <laughs> If you'd like to support the show, please remember you may use the Amazon search bar in the lower right corner. A percentage of each purchase will go to the show and help keep us running. I would also like to mention the PayPal donation button. If you click on the PayPal donation button, you may choose between a monthly subscription or a one-time gift to the show. If you're familiar with how podcasts operate, most podcasts are kept alive through listener donations. So if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would like to keep us going and and keep the show running, please consider donating. No amount is too small. In fact, just a dollar or two every episode would be a huge help to the Renaissance podcast. So just remember, no amount is too small and we appreciate all donations.